Amen. Let's be seated. Open back up to 1 John 1. We're going to treat this passage a little bit differently than normal. This isn't going to be full-on exposition walking through it as so much as it is pulling out a theme out of these nine verses. In fact, uh, if you scan your eyes through particularly the last few verses we read, there's one particular noun that you will see repeated there multiple times. And introducing that noun, let me pose a question. Uh, Sometimes my children know I like to throw these questions at them. We're sitting at breakfast, and I did that again this morning. So I will pose it to you. What is the first command given in the Bible? No, you cheaters, you can't answer. So, I mean, what does our mind go to? Well, don't eat of the tree, right? Or maybe be fruitful and multiply. But I didn't say the first command given to man. What's the first command? Let there be light. And there was light. Now, light has got to be one of the most easily recognized symbols anywhere in the Word of God. There's lots of symbols that Christ used and that the Lord used in the Old Testament that have been confused, but it really is hard to do with light. Ever since that first command, let there be light, all the way till that city described in Revelation, which descends from God out of heaven, which needs no candle and needs no light of the sun, all the way through, light has been used to characterize the prophets of God. Remember the Lord said of John the Baptist, who, by the way, was essentially the end of the line of the Old Testament prophets, even though he appears in the New He said, he was a burning and a shining light. Light has been used to characterize the people of God. The Lord said, you, as Christians, ye are the light of the world. It's been used to typify the coming Messiah. The light to lighten the Gentiles. It's been used to depict the word of God. Lamp unto my feet and a light Unto my path, a more sure word of prophecy, a light shining in darkness. And light has been used, of course, to characterize all three members of the Trinity. All throughout Scripture, when you see that Shekinah glory cloud of God manifested visibly, uh, primarily in the Old Testament, one of the most principal, prominent elements was intense light. In Genesis 15, when God passes through, puts Abraham to sleep, and Instead of bringing Abraham in as a party in this covenant, he he puts him to sleep and God Himself passes through it, showing this covenant is unconditional. But one of the manifestations was a burning lamp. And Israel in the wilderness was led by a pillar of fire. Uh, The tabernacle, even from a distance, it it must have been magnificent. In that wilderness blackness, if a person could look from far away and see this pillar of fire... Descending in the blackness above that tabernacle, it must have been something to behold. Certainly they'd look and say there's something different about that group of people because of their God. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, that veil of flesh is peeled back. And in the middle of the day, Christ's brightness exceeds the sun and puts these men on their faces. 
And by the way, this is why Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's a deceiver in the spiritual realm. Somebody has said Satan is never more satanic than when he carries a Bible. I agree with that sentiment. I would remind us when the Antichrist, the man of sin, comes to power, Christian dumb, not Christianity, but fake Christianity will be flourishing at that point. And the Antichrist will not come as an outright atheist. He will come as a religious man who eventually sets all the world to worship him in the Jewish temple. Satan definitely wants to mimic light. Now the passage that we just read, if you notice in verses 5 to 9, light is mentioned six times. Now suppose I posed another question this morning. What is light? I mean, I think we're a little taken aback by the question because it seems universally understood. We just know what it is by experience. We usually don't take the time to try to describe it unless you're in a laboratory somewhere. And secondly, I guess you might wonder what kind of definition I'm asking for. I mean, do you want a working practical definition or do you want a scientific one? Now, we tend to explain things a lot of times by what they do rather than what they are. By their effects rather than essence. And the Bible does this in multiple places. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, don't turn there, but if you did, the so-called love chapter, probably the most extensive description of that attribute of God anywhere in the Bible, what do you find? It's not describing love in its essence, it's describing love by what it does. In other words, you cannot love with God's kind of love without doing. Somebody says, well, I really love my wife. If you're not showing it, then no, you do not. The same is true of faith in Hebrews 11. Faith is described there in terms of what it looks like, what it accomplishes, how it looks in our everyday life. But I think looking uh, at what it is at its core, scientifically, what is light? Well, scientifically, light is the radiation that is emitted by electrons when they lose energy. And this radiation is carried in massless particles called photons that travels in waves at a constant speed of 186,282 miles per second. That should satisfy the scientist. Spiritually speaking, though, what is light? It's an important concept to understand given all that's said about it. How do you define it? Is it morality? Is it goodness? Is it righteousness? Is it love? I would contend those are not adequate enough because they're what light produces and how it behaves, not what it is. Notice verse 4 in the passage we read. In Him, speaking of Christ, the Messiah, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Spiritual life, the very life of God, that is what constitutes real life. You can follow that through the passage. The light shineth in darkness. What light? The life of God shined in darkness. 
God gave the world a manifestation like they'd never had. God himself came in human flesh and actually walked and talked and breathed and died on this earth. When Adam sinned, he made himself spiritually incompatible with God. The light in his soul was switched to the off position, and all of a sudden he was dwelling in darkness, even underneath the blazing sun. Why? Because he was disconnected from the life of God. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was not merely saying, I'm the ticket to some heavenly place, or that I'm a leader of some new and exciting religion. He was saying, I am the solution to the sin problem. I am the only light that can take away darkness. I am the light, the fullness of the Godhead, God dwelling in human flesh, the light of the world. Bodily. Manifested right here in a fallen world. God stooping down to shine a light so bright that it cannot be missed. I want to point out as a side note, when you're reading the Scriptures, notice there is a difference between eternal life and heaven. Much is said about heaven. In fact, a lot of evangelism starts with, do you want a home in heaven? I would point out the New Testament emphasis is on eternal life, not so much heaven. Do you know why that is? Because heaven's a place. And eternal life demands a change of nature. Kind of like somebody says, oh, I like living in Montana. Well, you know when you hear that, that living in Montana are not necessarily the same thing. Just because you're alive doesn't mean you're in Montana. And just because you're in Montana doesn't mean you are alive. That's why Jesus said, ye must be born again. He says to this religious man, Nicodemus, not Nicodemus, you need a ticket to heaven. He said, Nicodemus, you need a fundamental change that's so powerful that it can only be called a new birth. You need life. You need light. You're in darkness. Now, I just want to give some general principles of physical light because there's really amazing parallels in the spiritual realm. First of all, we're well aware that light travels incomprehensible distances at astonishing speeds. You know, you hear especially lost scientists in the evolutionary model, and they throw around these numbers like 14 million light years, as though they can even remotely fathom that. Have you ever stopped to think about one light year? Considering light travels seven and a half times around the equator of the Earth in one second... Now, how long is a light year? Well, it's traveling seven times and a half times around the equator of the earth every second for 31,536,000 seconds every year. Unbelievable. You know, someday Christ will stand up from his seat next to the Father. And it's interesting, both of his comings, we were talking in Sunday school about the difference between the rapture and the second coming. They are two different events. The rapture, he's catching up the believers of the church age up in the clouds to be with him. The second coming, he touches down on terra firma to set up his kingdom and to fight the war of Armageddon first. But both of those comings, if you want to call them that, are likened to light. What is that we read about in the rapture this morning? In a moment, in the 
twinkling of an eye. How fast is that? Matthew 24, speaking of the second coming, Christ is saying, don't be deceived at the end of the tribulation period for those that will be there here on earth when it's happening. Don't be deceived when someone says, hey, Christ is out here in the wilderness or uh, he landed over in Canada on accident. You should go over there and see if you can find him. He said, no, 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 listen. As the lightning cometh from the east and shineth unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When he comes in the rapture, it's going to be like the speed of light. When he comes to this earth in judgment and a second coming, it's going to be like the speed of light. Secondly, light is always moving. Uh, many of the statements in the book of Job fascinate me because Job is probably the oldest of the Bible books, probably the first one written. It puts it back roughly 4,000 years. Now, several scientific statements occur, uh, primarily in God's monologue to Job at the end. You remember that? Job is saying, God, why are you doing this and that? And the Lord appears and begins asking questions. By my count, he asked 60 of them, starting with, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, that'll put man in his place in a hurry. But one of the statements we see earlier in the book where is the way where light dwelleth? Job 38, 18. Where is the way light dwelleth? As for darkness, where is the place thereof? So profound scientific truth there that darkness is stagnant, but light is always moving. There's a way where it dwells. Light is never stagnant. It is always on the move. By the way, so is divine light. It's never inactive, even when it appears to be. It's always convicting. It's always drawing. It's always illuminating. It's always guiding. It's always comforting. It's always restraining. Some of you remember well when you were dwelling in darkness. And you wanted to get rid of the light within. And you'd go to dens of iniquity and you'd watch things and you'd do things to stifle the voice of conscience. But you know, looking back, the light was still shining. It pursued after you. It cut right through the darkness. Thank God that it does. Thirdly, visible light is made up of seven different colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection or completion. And by the way, no matter who tries to hijack that symbol, it still belongs to God and to His throne and to His covenant. What does it take to separate those colors, though? It takes a prism, a crystal, or a raindrop. Any of you see a couple days ago that fantastic double rainbow up in the North Valley? Yeah, I was talking to you about that one. That was something. And it seems to always be, I'll tell my kids, right after the blackness of a rainstorm passes, you can see the black wall and the sun comes out. I say, all right, it's rainbow weather. Start looking. What does it take? Blackness. But then the promise of light after the storm and the sun shining through hits that prism and boom, it's another reminder that I'll never destroy the world by flood. It's going to be destroyed by fire. Fire. 
Similarly, the light of God shines through the blackness of sin and death and sorrow and difficulty. It makes His individual attributes stand out in their individual beauty. I mean, think. In a world so lacking in compassion, doesn't that magnify the mercy of God? In a world so given to debauchery, and filth, living in a moral sewer. Doesn't that make the holiness of God stand out? Same can be said of His other attributes. Another characteristic of natural light, light actually possesses a dual nature. Light behaves both as a stream of particles and as a wave of energy, both. It's like two different substances joined in one. Hearing that, I'm reminded of Christ, the light of the world, possessing two natures, permanently linked together, fully God and fully man. How about this one? I find this fascinating. Light is self-sustaining. If you take the most powerful gun on this earth, whatever that is, and you fire it, eventually you know what's going to happen. A projectile's going to run out of speed and fall somewhere. You ever wondered how it is that light, a beam of light, can travel all of those light years and seemingly never run out of gas? Well, that was a mystery. It still is a mystery, but it's a little more explainable scientifically. In the mid-19th century, a Scottish mathematical physicist named James Clerk Maxwell discovered that A changing electrical field produces a magnetic field, and a changing magnetic field produces an electrical field. And that light is made of both magnetic and electrical fields. So light is literally self-sustaining as the electrical and magnetic keep feeding each other. So it can travel seemingly infinite amounts of time and space undiminished in energy. Kind of like one statement of Scripture, isn't it? Applied by the Holy Spirit, carries all the weight and authority and power of God undiminished. Do you believe that the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation? Do you believe the gospel can save people addicted to social media? Do you believe it can shine into darkened hearts in a culture? It's so debased. The answer to that is yes, because divine light is also self-sustaining. The life of Christ is like a laser beam from heaven, undiminished in glory. And what stops its effect when it encounters a substance that it cannot penetrate, such as a hardened, stony heart of a sinful rebel? Light has anti-aging properties, at least we're told. Some have theorized no one's ever done it, but if you travel at the speed of light, the closer you get to that speed, the more aging slows down. I'm not sure if Erwin Moon on the old Moody Science videos, if you know who he is, is correct on that and several other people. I, I can't wait to meet that guy, by the way. He's a character. But when we stand in the full blaze of God's glory and behold Him as He is, dwelling in the light, there'll be no more aging for us. 
Now, in the creation account that we're familiar with, there's three sources of light that are mentioned. First is the sun. It's this universal, constant, predictable object that outshines every other object to us in the sky by a thousandfold. Its rays give warmth, energy, and sustain life, and without it, all life on earth would immediately cease to exist. And the irony is, though we're entirely dependent on it, we can't bear to look directly at it. It's a continual reminder, isn't it? There's one dwelling in the heavens that we are utterly dependent upon, who shines on the just and the unjust, but at the same time in our sin, we can't bear to look directly at Him. No man's ever been able to. Then, of course, there's the moon, and what a correlation to us it is. The moon by itself is barren and lifeless. There's no light that it has of its own. And it's only as its face is yielded to the piercing rays of the sun that it can reflect that light as a help to others. The moon has only one face, by the way. It's always looking the same side at us. I think you and I should only have one face, too. What are those dark spots on the moon? Well, those are craters that don't reflect light. You see, outside influences have been permitted to conform that surface to a different shape. And to the degree the moon's conformed to a different shape by outside influences, in those places it deflects light instead of reflecting light. Boy, isn't that like us. But you know, I've often been encouraged looking up at that moon because I see myself in it that even though there may only be a crescent and you may want to see it more illuminated, yet it still gives some light to the degree that it's yielded to the sun. Then there's the stars, of course. And really, they're like looking back in time, both historically and figuratively. The starlight you see right now really isn't technically there right now. It's from way back. Some have asked the question, how can a star be a million light years away if the earth is 6,000 years old? I think it's found that he stretched forth the heavens. God can do what he wants with light. He He made it out of nothing. He commands it. It does what he says. But you're looking up at the same stars that Abraham saw. You're looking up at the same stars that multitudes of others have looked at in the past. Still witnesses of God's creating hand. And they're looking back at us, aren't we? It's a sobering thing if somebody theoretically could be ten light years away and have a strong enough uh, magnifying glass of some sort. What would they see? They would see what you were doing 10 years ago. And guess what? If you're lost, God still sees it. He's the ever-present now. There's no such thing as the past to Him. It's a scary thing that on Judgment Day, God's going to open up the books, not because He needs to jar His memory. Take somebody like Cain, that first murderer who went off to hell, and God is still watching his murder live and living technicolor because God dwells outside of time. 
How about principles of light in relation to men? These also have tremendous spiritual application. God said, let there be light at the beginning, and there's been light ever since. Verse 9 in the text we read, look what it says. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now what tense is that word lighteth in? It's in the present. Lighting men wasn't something God did only in the past, nor is it something He'll do only in the future. Illuminating men is something God does all of the time on an ongoing basis, and you can be sure even the most hardened, militant, God-hating atheist on this planet to some degree has had the light of God shine on him. Now what he's done with that is his choice. But he has had opportunity. Jesus said in John 16, When I go, I'm going to send you another comforter, another of the same kind is what the word means, and he's going to reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You can be sure anybody living in defiance of God who has any shred of conscience left still feels the pangs of that conviction no matter how much they suppress it. See, that's the glorious thing about preaching the gospel. You and I have an omnipotent ally we can be quite confident is bearing witness within while we bear witness without. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. They're literally screaming out His existence and His eternal power. Romans 1 said the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. In addition to that, the world has the witness of the written Word of God and the witness of Christian people who the Lord says are the light of the world. So, first principle of light in relation to man is that it is sure. God will give it. Secondly, maybe a little more mysteriously, is that light is sovereignly distributed. And we see this just looking at the world. While the sun is always shining, obviously not all places of earth receive equal duration or intensity. One of the things I find amusing living here in Montana is that if you meet somebody who came up, say, from Phoenix, and uh, you ask them what they think of the daylight... They're going to say, boy, howdy, it's sure dark here. Well, I grew up in Alaska, and I'm here to tell you, it's sure light here. Now, between Alaska and Phoenix and Montana, there's a different dispersal of light, and God does that according to His sovereign pleasure. Can't explain all the reasons. I know scientifically, tilt of the earth's access and everything else, but why did God do that? Because He wanted to, because He's God. Now, think of Jesus as the light of the world. We have to admit, the same is true spiritually. Not all people receive the same duration or intensity of spiritual light. I've heard it often since being here. Montana is a spiritually dark place. All it is. But he says, well, it's just so hard to run across truth here. Such vices of sin, such difficulty. There's truth to that. Ever interviewed somebody who's lived in China for a couple decades? It can be a matter of perspective. 
Why is it that even in post-Christian America, you can still find Bibles easily? You can still find churches in most cities that are at least preaching the gospel. Over a billion people live over in China with a facial recognition camera here. And all people under the age of 18 are forbidden to attend any religious services whatsoever. So are teachers, doctors, lawyers, and any other professional you want to name. Some say it's the worst there that it's ever been. It's horrible. Why does God allow that? I don't have all the answers. But God's light, what He does allow, is sovereignly distributed. We see nations that were once a lighthouse. England is dwelling largely in spiritual blackness. So is the east coast of the United States and the west coast is following in short order. Some people live a very long time and have much opportunity. Some are cut off in the flower of youth. Some people are raised with a Bible on the shelf in their homes. Some are not. You may as well candidly face the question, why? I don't have all the answers. Because He's God. And I don't have to apologize for Him. I do know this from the Scriptures. God desires all men to be saved. God knows the reaction of everybody and what light they're given. God knows the best place to put somebody to put them in contact with spiritual truth. And I don't have all the answers. But I want to give one more note on that. Here's what else we know about light in relation to man. It may not be as much as we want, but it is sufficient. You know, results or estimates on this vary, but what I'm told is that only one millionth of a percent of light is actually visible. That means of all the light traveling around us right now, you and I see an infinitesimal speck of what can really be seen. And there's brilliant displays of light and color all around that we are utterly blind to. Kind of like many of the unseen attributes of God. I wonder sometimes what Adam must have seen. I don't know. Were his eyes superior to ours before the fall? I can't answer that. But if we could see everything, <laughs> every time you turn the microwave on, you see the colors. might scare you. Every time you went to an x-ray machine, you'd see it. Every time you turned on the radio, drive down the street, you'd see waves going everywhere. <laughs> oh, by the way, the New Jerusalem, it's either a cube or a prism. It may be a prism the way it's described at the end of Revelation. Everything's clear and transparent with light just radiating down from the top. But even though we don't see that huge percentage of light that's around us, the light we do have is sufficient to go about our duties, isn't it? And we have sufficient evidence to know that unseen things are just as real. Here's what this boils down to with all the flowery excuses that mankind makes. 
The light that God has given me and the light that God has given you is sufficient enough to respond to and it is sufficient enough to condemn you. What about the reaction to light from man's perspective? Really, there's just a couple. Flip ahead to John 3, if you would, while we discuss this. What can man do with God's light? Well, his natural reaction is to suppress it. Romans 1 speaks of the depravity of all mankind. And it says they hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold means to forcefully shove it down. Ever go in a swimming pool and try to keep one of those little floating devices underwater and it just keeps trying to pop to the surface? That's kind of the picture. Man's natural disposition is trying to shove the truth of God down and shove it down and shove it down. And listen, there's many ways to suppress it. Someone can suppress it by outright defiance. I will not listen. They can also suppress it by apathy. Well, I'm just not sure. You may hide behind that now, but I guarantee you that hiding place is going away when you really step into the light. It's funny, we like the sun, don't we? To a point. We recognize the benefits. I don't think any one of us would say, let's let the sun go away. But what I see when I walk around in the summer is sunglasses, sunblock, sunshades. Because even though we can't control the light of the sun, we do our best to keep its effects out of certain compartments of our life. There's a lot of people like that with God. We want the sun to a point. We're all for a little morality. We're all for people not robbing me blind when I'm out of town. That's nice. But when it comes to the light of God really penetrating, shades go on. And the blinds shut. Stay out of that. Look at John 3, 19. Glorious promises before this about man believing in Christ and being given eternal life. But look at verse 19. And this is the condemnation. What's the death sentence from God? That light is come into the world? Notice it doesn't say man couldn't change, couldn't believe, nothing. It's put in the will. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if you're going to respond favorably to His invitations to come to Christ, there's one thing He's going to do is turn on the spotlight on you. Most people refuse that.
Light can be suppressed or it can be stepped into. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. I know I don't want to give up my sin. I'm not going to change my life. I'm fine. You're fine. I'm fine. We're fine. My truth, your truth, I'm good, you're good. Until this world is destroyed by fire. Look at verse 21. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. See, a cardinal evidence of having been born of God is that you want yourself exposed. You want sin dealt with. I don't mean before the whole world, but I'm saying you want, you want it dealt with as much as it needs to be. You know that God knows, and you're done hiding. See, the Christian life is really a progression of stepping more and more into the light. I think of the proverb, I forget the reference, but I love it. The path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Flip back to John 1 and I'll be done. Verse 10, tragic statement. He was in the world, speaking of Christ, and the world was made by Him. The Creator stepped into the world He made, and the world knew Him not. Verse 11. By the way, you'll see the word own in there twice. It's actually two slightly different words. He came unto His own. That's speaking of the created things, the world, the temple, Israel. And his own, that's speaking of the Jews. He came into his own world that he made, but his own people received him not. But look at the change in tone. But as many as received him. You see, that, that's man's part. What does it mean to receive Christ? It doesn't mean repeat a little magic prayer. But it means you step into the light. You agree with the testimony of God that you are just as wicked as He says with no excuse. Your sin is not anybody else's fault. It's not the fault of your environment. You are a willing rebel by choice. If you've never been there, you've never been saved. But then there's a choice of the will. Yes, I accept what God says about me, but what now? You see, there has to be a blood sacrifice, doesn't there? Oh, that's where that's come. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came and was slaughtered and took all the wrath that you deserve. What does it mean to receive Him? To trust in Him. To take the sacrifice that He made on my behalf plus nothing. Cast myself upon Him in faith to save my wicked soul. Look at the promise. My part, I receive Him. As many as received Him, what happened? To them gave He power. To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Salvation isn't merely some transaction or like switching political parties. It's very truly a new birth, a beginning of days. Have you been there? What's your response to light this morning? What's your response when sin is pointed out? 
Do you hide in the closet like a cockroach? Or do you come out and deal with it? You see, God's nature is the same, isn't it? And light is always going to expose. But I'm telling you, the one who gives divine life is very merciful and very compassionate, isn't he? And he's willing to save anybody who comes to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. And we thank you, Lord, for the object lessons you give us in this world that are so astounding. Father, I pray that those believers in this room, and you know who they are, would press on in walking in light, would have a real hatred, Lord, not for people, but for darkness. Lord, you know who's here that may be a religious pretender, maybe just sitting on the fence, maybe hiding behind the I don't know. But really what's happening is they're unwilling to hear. And pray, God, you'd break that heart of stone. I pray you'd open their eyes enough to see the impending day of total doom and destruction that's coming. They may not see it now, but it's coming like lightning. Thank you for giving us truth, and thank you for your long-suffering. Help us to walk as children of light. In Jesus' name, amen.